This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word uh, that you set before us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine that word to us afresh today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, that was quite a storm last night. At least it was where I live in O'Hara Township. Anyone else get an absolute deluge? We had branches down, all sorts. But, you know, there I was on the deck, just finishing grilling some food, and the sky is going so dark, and the temperature, you feel it drop fast, and then the wind picks up, and you know it's coming. Well, Jesus said, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say it's going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. And then he says, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but you do not know how to interpret the present time. Hmm. Do you know? how to interpret the present time in which we live? Predicting the weather suddenly seems a whole lot more straightforward. It's not easy, is it, knowing how to interpret the times in which we live? So much about this present time seems uncertain or in a state of change, and usually change not for the better. Whether we think of the world and global terrorism or the rise all over the place of nationalism or in our own nation, the horrors of mass shootings, of racism or closer to home, maybe in your own family or personal life, there are perhaps so much that is uncertain, so many things that are difficult, so many areas of life that are just simply broken. What should we do? How are we to react? Whose voices should we be listening to? How are we to interpret this present time? Should we be optimistic or pessimistic? Sadly, it's possible to use the Bible just to kind of back up our own inherent personality traits and predispositions. You know, some of you are just predisposed to being like Tigger. You're just eternal optimist, regardless of what's going on. And others of you, frankly, are more like Eeyore, and it's all rather gloomy. But let's not use the Bible to just prop up our own uh, predispositions. For the Christian view of the present time should neither be merely optimistic, that which is, frankly, based on wishful thinking, or a misplaced trust in progress or technology or politics? I mean, do we really still want to put our trust in those things? But nor should it be pessimistic, that which is based on a sense of powerlessness. So what we find in the scriptures is that instead of pessimism, the Bible speaks of judgment. Instead of optimism, the Bible speaks of hope. So when we look at the changes and chances of life, the instabilities and uncertainties that assail us, 
we can hold on to this truth. The ultimate future of the world and our lives in it is not determined by some future as yet unknown crisis, illness, or catastrophe, but rather by an event that has already happened, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where our hope lies. As commentator Michael Wilcott writes, the advent of the carpenter of Nazareth is the most significant happening in history. But the majority who can see meanings and connections and relationships in most of the phenomena in the world around them are hypocrites when they look at Jesus Christ and pretend that they can make nothing of the remarkable facts of his life, death, and resurrection. So as we try and interpret the present time, we need to do so in the light of Jesus and with a right understanding of judgment and hope. At first hearing, the opening words of our gospel reading this morning are stark, shocking, and sobering. And they speak of judgment. It's Jesus speaking here. He says, I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. And then Jesus goes on to speak of his having to undergo a baptism, and what stress he is under until that is completed. What are we to make of this? Well, I think we can be clear that Jesus is saying that God's plan for salvation, that's the hope, that plan is also a plan that involves judgment. Now, we know, and we, we rehearse this in the creed, that one day Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. But that's not what this is talking about here. The extraordinary thing about this judgment, at least in the first instance, is that it is a judgment that Jesus himself will bear for others. Now, this is obviously not an attractive prospect for Jesus. And yet, his heart is set on it. The baptism of which he speaks is his own death and the cross towards which he is going. That is the purpose for why he came. The cross, then, is the pivotal event in history. It is the cross that brings hope and salvation, forgiveness an eternal life. That is not mere optimism. That is much more solid than that. But the cross also brings mocking and scorn and rejection. Jesus says in the next verse, do you think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? Is that what you think? No, I tell you. But rather division. We love to rehearse and sing and tell the great stories of Christmas when the angels filled the skies, the heavenly choirs, singing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. And what Jesus is saying here, and all of that's true, of course, and yet at the same time, Jesus is saying here that there will be those for whom following him will mean anything but peace and will bring divided 
loyalties. If Jesus is to have the first place in our lives, then that will almost necessarily put us into conflict with other people or things that want first place. Jesus faced that so starkly in his own life on earth. And we who follow him, frankly, can expect nothing different. St. Paul, in one of his letters to the church at Corinth, says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message that Christ came to bring was a message of reconciliation with God. But that reconciliation was made possible only at great, great price and sacrifice. It was made possible through his death. Now, the kind of division, the kind of opposition that we sometimes face, sadly, comes not from the power of the gospel, not because of the cross of Christ, but because of our own selfishness, our own insensitivity to others, our own insistence on our own way. But if we're to remain faithful to Jesus and his teaching, then we should not be surprised to find ourselves in opposition to those who reject God's word. Even, Jesus tells us, from within our own family. And there are many of us here who know with great heartache that that's true. So how are we to respond? How are we to live in this present time? Well, I think the answer is, at least to some extent, uh, set out for us this morning on, in our epistle reading from Hebrews. And the call before us is clear. No matter how anyone else may behave, no matter what anyone else may say, no matter what opposition we may encounter, we, as followers of Christ, are to run with perseverance the race that is set before us. We're not to let the present time distract us from our worship of God, our work for God, and our witness to others in our words and our actions. We have a message to proclaim, and it's a message of hope and life. And yes, judgment too. This message is vital. It is so relevant, so needed today. We know that all around us are so many people who have no time for God. They have no time for the church. And tragically, they are so, so lost. Well, using the vivid imagery of the athletic track, we're told three things. What we must reject, how we should run, and where we should look. First, what we must reject. Verse 1 says we need to lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. You know, obviously you can't sprint very well if you are overweight or you're wearing a heavy winter coat. And the spiritual athlete likewise needs to get rid of whatever it is that hinders him or her. Everything that may entangle us. And so many things do. 
you know, sometimes we have great intentions. We, we plan to read our Bibles each day. We, we intend to pray each day. But sometimes these good intentions fall along the wayside. So often we want to run the race of the Christian life. But before we know where we are, we've been tripped up by those things maybe that we're not prepared to lay aside. You know, wanting to lose weight and wanting to eat as much as I like well, they just don't go together. I know that this is true. Why are you laughing? <laughs> wanting to run the Christian race, wanting to live our lives without any sense of discipline also doesn't go together. You know, the letter to the Hebrews tells us in verse 5 that we can, be, we can expect to be disciplined. And I want to just say something about this word because, you know, there's a sense in which we should practice good discipline, right? And we should form good habits because they shape us as people. We know that. We know that for our physical lives, but it's true of our spiritual lives. But the discipline that is being spoken of here is something a little bit different. This is the discipline that God visits upon us because he loves us. My child, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every child whom he accepts. And I'm going to come back to this in a moment. But I want to stick with these three things of what we have to reject. Secondly, now, um, how we should run. We're instructed that we're to run with perseverance. You know, to live our lives contrary to the way many live around us is not easy. To say no to things that might be quite fine in themselves, but actually come between us and God can be very hard. You know, you might find yourself having to make a choice, and it may even involve your kids, you know, about a sporting activity or a, a music rehearsal or a family outing or overtime at work on a Sunday, and you have to make choices about these things in order that you can come and worship. These are not easy. To persevere in the face of subtle or not so subtle pressure to conform to the world's standards can be very challenging indeed. And so the race we're in is much more of a marathon than a sprint. But running with perseverance is possible only when, thirdly, we look to Jesus. And I, I can't stress this enough this morning because if you hear what I'm saying today as a call merely to try harder and do better and practice more discipline, then I've failed. Because we can never get there by doing that. But when, and, and those things are good, and we need to do them. But that's not the solution. It is as we look to Jesus that you will, I hope, see his love, his compassion, and you will see him cheering you on. Indeed, you know, the passage spoke of this being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And these are the, the witnesses of the saints who've gone before. And they're not kind of looking down on us saying, oh, well, he fell again. Oh, look at him. What a hypocrite. No, they're cheering us on cheering us on to run the race with perseverance. And when you fail, as we all do constantly, Jesus 
is there to lift us up, to help, to encourage. Now, he's not a soft touch, but neither is he a cruel taskmaster. So we're to lay aside every hindrance, we're to persevere, and we're to look to Jesus. So then what? What happens if we do these things? Well, I think when our lives are modeled after this pattern, we can and should expect to be living differently from those around us who do not follow Jesus. And yet, sadly, so often, our lives as Christians and in the church, well, they don't frankly look that different from the world around us. Indeed, that is the premise upon which um, the challenging little book, uh, Surprise the World, begins with. I, I recommended this as uh, some summer reading. I, I mean, it, it's a short, um, moderately well-written little book. I know it's terrible to say that publicly, but there you go. But let me say this about it. There's nothing hard to understand. It's big type, small pages. You can read it quickly. But boy, is this challenging. And it's not try harder, work more, do 15 things before breakfast. No, it's going rather deeper than that about how we understand who God has made us to be and the calling he's placed on our lives. We're going to dig into this a little more in our parish uh, retreat this October. But in it, the writer challenges us as Christians to be people who live questionable lives. And he does so not in the usual sense of that word, um, which you know obviously means, well, that's rather questionable, means it's somehow morally or, um, I don't know, dubious or lacking in integrity. No, rather that our lives would stand out and make people ask why, because they're different from those who do not follow Jesus. Not because we're holier than thou, not because we're judgmental or arrogant or think we know everything, but rather because of the extraordinary love and kindness, hospitality and care that you and I show to our neighbors. Well, back to our passage this morning. We see that because God loves the church, he treats us as his sons and daughters. And this love means he won't spoil us or ignore us and get away with rebellion and sin and selfishness forever. Instead, he disciplines us. So I'm going to come back to that uh, now. In verse 7, we read that we're to endure trials for the sake of discipline. Now, of course, none of us likes to be disciplined. I don't. I don't imagine you do. But in a healthy parent-child relationship, discipline is vital. And it's a, it's a mark of genuine, good parental love. And just as a loving human parent is anxious for their children to realize their potential, to uh, come to maturity, so too our Heavenly Father wants the same for us. You know, without appropriate loving discipline, our children would remain immature, childish, and selfish. 
The same is true for the church. And our reading from Hebrews tells us that the purpose of God's discipline is to train us, to enable us to share in Christ's holiness, and so that we may bear good fruit. Now, we love that part of it. We want to see lots of good fruit, of course. But this idea of discipline, not so much. And this comes up elsewhere in the scriptures. You know, we read of Jesus talking about trees that need to be pruned, and they then have a bumper harvest. Great! The pruning, well, that's a bit more painful. But we need it. And of course, this takes time. But the fruit that we long to see is that described as a harvest of righteousness and peace. A harvest of righteousness and peace. Boy, does our world, our nation, this land, need to see that harvest. And there aren't any shortcuts to this righteousness and peace. And so for us, running the Christian race is about perseverance. It is about looking constantly to Jesus. And it's about throwing off all that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. These things are true for us. They're true for us as individuals. They're true for us together as God's people. If we are in danger, as we are, of being entangled by complacency or pride or a false confidence in something or someone other than the Lord, then we need to repent. Do you have a false confidence this morning in your wealth, in your retirement, in your career, in yourself? If you do, then you need to repent. Our confidence is in Jesus. And if we find ourselves facing setbacks or disappointments, if we are oppressed or maligned, then we need to keep on persevering, following Jesus ever more closely, trusting him ever more fully, and loving him ever more deeply. And furthermore, we need to heed the challenge from verse 12 of our reading from Hebrews. Listen to it again. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. And so as well as this persevering, we need to strengthen our feeble knees of prayer. As we continue to run the race that is set before us in the face of setbacks and uncertainties, we need constantly to be committing all of our ways to God that he may direct our paths. That's true when we're facing things that seem overwhelming, things that seem impossible. When we get news, perhaps from the doctor, that is terrifying. When we're faced into challenges at work that we just don't know how we're ever going to overcome them, or we're facing relationships that seem broken beyond repair, or even as a congregation, we're looking at this enormous um, More Than Stones project, 
And, and sometimes you may think, well, we, we just can't do it. It's so big. But I think when we're tempted to feel in despair, we need to get to our knees and strengthen those weak knees and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our salvation. And so at the end of the day, I think, in the face of all these many challenges that we all face in life, what we can do by way of response is actually quite straightforward. Not easy, but straightforward and, and practical. We began by looking at the importance of being able to interpret the times. Now, I don't think you need to be an intellectual or theological giant to be able to look at the state of our nation and the things that are said and done by our leaders, our neighbors, and, yes, by ourselves, to realize that we have a problem. It is very clear that racism and sexism and extremism and judgmentalism are rife too much part of the fabric of our society, and we as Christians need to take our stand against them. Now, it's gone very quiet. I'm not surprised. It's hard even to speak about these things from the pulpit without stepping on a landmine, because often they're highly charged politically. But I don't think we can remain silent in the face of injustices, cruelty, and inhumanity whenever and wherever and however they raise their ugly heads. Whether exhibited institutionally through unjust laws or application of laws, or whether they occur privately. You know, being a follower of Jesus is not a call to bland religiosity, but rather a call to radical love that is concerned about justice and hope, about forgiveness and reconciliation. And that touches all of us, whatever your political persuasions. It really does. The times we live in provide the backdrop for the race that is set before us as Christians a race that we are to run with perseverance, keeping our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. Nothing and no one else. So let us lift up our drooping hands in praise and worship to the Sovereign Lord, who is the just judge and Lord of all. Let us strengthen our weak knees as we kneel before the Lord and cry out to him, to heal, to heal our hearts, to heal our homes, to heal our schools, to heal our, heal our neighborhoods, to heal our massive political differences and all that is wrong in politics, to heal our nation. Let us praise the Lord and let us pray to the Lord. As the summer comes to an end and the signs of the times illustrate so vividly our need of God's saving grace again and again and again, let us be praying for one another and let us strengthen and encourage and challenge and help one another. So this coming week, when you see evidence of godlessness, 
Turn your despair into prayer. Beginning with the prayer for God to change you. Do not grow weary or lose heart. Instead, lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And finally, let us together run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us and let us always and only fix our eyes upon Jesus. Amen.